0: This is the Whirly Bear Productions podcast. I'm your host, Amber Williams. I discuss film finance and distribution with filmmakers and entertainment lawyers. Electra Yao is an award-winning artist visa and entertainment lawyer in New York City. Electra is the founder and principal attorney at Yao Law Group law firm, dedicated to international and domestic artists. She's a member of the American Immigration Lawyers Association, Black Entertainment and Sports Lawyer Association and the New York City Bar Association, where she is a member of several committees. Electra is fully fluent in French, Italian and Spanish. She has successfully represented record labels, modelling agencies, production companies, individual artists and creatives. On this episode, Electra shares a wealth of information about immigration to the States, Focusing on green cards and business visas. It was a joy talking with such an intelligent and knowledgeable woman. I hope you find this episode
1: as eye-opening as I did. Electra, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Amber. I'm really excited to have this discussion with you and and talk about all things um, US immigration. Yes. I am too. Thank you
2: so much for coming on. I'm really excited. I'm um, happy to see you. So can you talk us through, for anyone that doesn't know, what a green card is?
1: Great. So a green card is a modality to live in the U.S. permanently. It's not citizenship, so you're not a U.S. citizen, but you're granted permanent uh, permanent stay here in the U.S. Because it is not citizenship, you have to renew your residency every 10 years. Now, there are different ways of getting your green card. You can get your green card through family, you can get your green card through work, or you can get your green card through humanitarian reasons. So these are three different processes with multiple different subcategories, but they're all different ways for you to remain in the U.S. permanently. Um, I think a lot of people have heard about a green card through marriage, so I'll just talk about that very, very quickly. Um, So basically, when a foreign national is married to a U.S. citizen, whether a U.S. citizen by birth or a U.S. citizen by um, derivation, whether you were born abroad to American parents or whether you were a foreign national that Became a US citizen, when a uh, foreign national marries a US citizen, he or she is considered to be a first preference relative, right? Considered to be an immediate relative. These spouses are at the top of the line or at the top of the queue to receive a green card. The process or the timing for receiving a green card is roughly around a year after the case or the petition has been filed. It's a really exciting time right now to file your green card, obviously, if you qualify, because right now there are no interviews. So prior to COVID, there were interviews to kind of um, vet out your relationship to make sure that this was a, a proper relationship You know, done for um, you know traditional purposes, as long as it wasn't done for an immigration purpose, you had an interview with an immigration officer. Now, cases are being approved very quickly without an interview. So if you are married to um, a U.S. citizen, now would be the time to um, capitalize off the fact that interviews are being waived. So the marriage-based green card is the green card that is most typically um, thought of or discussed when we're talking about um, green cards. Now, the second way is through employment. Now, what's really interesting about U.S. immigration law is that through employment, you can petition for yourself. So you don't need an employer and you can apply for a green card on your own, or you can be sponsored by a company. Now, let's talk about the first option where you petition for yourself without a company kind of backing you up. This is for people who have a very, very high Um, level of competency within their field, people who are usually at the top of their field. So just to put this in in very simple terms, think of like, you know, foreign celebrity, like Hugh Grant, for example. Hugh Grant can apply for a green card on his own based on his own merit because he has reached the pinnacle of his field. He's probably won numerous acting awards, been in a, a lot of different films and productions. So he would have no problem applying for a green card without an employer. Um, let's say, for example, you have not reached this very high level within your field, you can still apply for your green card, but you need a company to sponsor you. So think of Google. Google wants to hire you, for example, and they really think that you'd be a great fit for their company. They would file what's known as a perm application. So a perm application is a permanent application for you to remain within the country. Now, this has a couple of additional steps. We have to go through the Department of Labor, and then we have to go through immigration or USCIS, um, but it's still a valid way. It's just a little bit longer than self-petitioning, which is basically applying without um, the employer. Now, the third way is what we call a humanitarian process. So let's say, for example, you have been the victim of a crime, um, or let's say, for example, you are... Um, a victim of human trafficking, or let's say you are the the survivor of an abusive spouse, you can um, self petition for your green card based on these unfortunate events. Um, And that's the humanitarian way. So the US immigration system has carved out these different um, situations where a foreign national is in a vulnerable situation, and they can be they can self petition for themselves. So those are the three different ways of getting um, a Greek card.
2: Okay. So the extraordinary ability, um, it, you basically need to be a celebrity.
1: So no, no, no. I use, I use, no, I work on many non-celebrity cases. So um, I just used Hugh Grant to kind of demonstrate that you have to have a high level of demonstrated expertise. Um, What I mean demonstrated, I mean like you can be great at robotics, but for example, if your robotics career is not documented through, for example, Mm. press or recognized in the field by other experts, then it would not rise to the level of extraordinary ability. So the extraordinary abilities green card or the self petition green card is commonly used um, by artists it's the artist version of the green card or creative so i use those two terms very very loosely because um, it's kind of really hard to define art and creativity um, so i've done um actors, I've done nail techs, I've done hairstylists um, for green cards, I've done journalists, I've done all different types of people that use creative processes to get um, to accomplish their work. Obviously, um, extraordinary ability is not only for the arts, but it's also for those in athletics, in business in science. So there's a bunch of different fields that it applies to what is common to all these different fields and professions is you must have reached a high level within your field. So a common misconception, Amber, is yes, uh, is that people think you need to be a celebrity, that you need to have won awards, um, and those are helpful, uh, but not dispositive to winning the case. Okay, so in a film
2: and television, um, multiple professional credits would be, uh, would warrant you, would qualify you for a green card
1: kind of thing. Where Where is the bar kind of, where, well, where,
2: where is the threshold kind of thing?
1: Yeah, not necessarily. I mean, yes, of course you need to perform in different types of films, but it's also the type of film that is important. So for example, it can't be like a student film, right? It needs to be a film yeah. that has you know, been submitted to festivals, maybe won awards, maybe you won awards. Um, but legally there's t- there are 10 criteria and you need minimum of three criteria to meet the first part of the analysis. This three-part criteria is usually satisfied by uh, proving the different uh, productions that you've performed in or the different productions you've worked in. Because for example, even somebody who's a crew member can also apply for the Extraordinary Ability uh, Self-Petition Green Card. So the productions you've worked on, um, the press that you've garnered within your career, and the original contributions that you've made to your field. Those are typically... Um, the three criteria that are used to um, prove the first part of the analysis. Now, original contributions is kind of um, a very difficult um, and conceptual criterion, right? Like, it's hard for somebody um, who's on this uh, extraordinary ability green card to self-assess and understand what their contribution to the field has been. And you might also be wondering, like, how is this proven? Like, how do I actually prove? what my contribution is. Um, This criterion is typically proven with letters of recommendation or testimonial letters by experts within the field. So let's say, for example, your contribution to the field has been um, advocating for diversity and inclusion in film and TV. This um, achievement or this um, impact will be memorialized or documented through and confirmed through these different letters of recommendation by experts in the field. Now, these experts needn't have worked with you. There's no law, the law doesn't sit, state that you need to have worked with a person, but they need to be documented experts within the field. Most of the time, there is at least one um, celebrity type person that is a um, that is a person confirming the expertise of the foreign national, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a celebrity. In the film and TV world, it's very um, unfortunately complex because USCIS really does not look favorably upon performers. So this is the case type or this is the profession that is most highly RFE. So an RFE is known as a request for further evidence. This is where the government wants additional information. And oftentimes, um, these letters or these notices asking for additional evidence are asking you to reprove what has already been submitted in the case, or they're applying the wrong legal standard to your case, or flat out they're just re, they're ignoring everything that was submitted. So this is very very frustrating on behalf of the client uh, or the foreign national, and I fully understand that. But USCIS does not like performers, performers, um, singers, and dancers due to the. Um, instability and volatility um, and um, chameleon-like consideration of that, of those professions. So performers um, performing in a show or performing in a film, this can change from night and day, right? You can have a producer that has secured funding and then the day after, you know, the contract does not go through. Or for example, you know, you secured a location but something happens. Or maybe the director decides to pull out of the film. These are all situations that can make it so that film or that production doesn't happen or at most is delayed. USCIS is aware of this, and this is why they don't like the profession. They would much rather approve these traditional artistic professions like, for example, a marketing um, executive, because people who work in marketing tend to be attached to large agencies, right, they tend to work for these huge marketing companies that have, you know, very long history within the field of working with major brands. Um, Of course, um, I'm not, this is not to say that performers don't get approved or singers don't get approved or dancers don't get approved. They absolutely do get approved. It's just much more difficult for USCIS to properly analyze them and thus approve them compared to um, another type of profession. Right.
2: And is that similar with sort of directors and producers,
1: that level, rather than the, the performers themselves? No, so um, it's it's strange because you would think that somebody who's behind the scenes would have a more difficult time of proving their leadership within a production. But no, um, USAS has an easier time of approving producers and directors because the evidence that is submitted is very different. So for example, directors usually have contracts, directors have call sheets, so do performers. Um, but it is common knowledge that a producer, Um, or common knowledge within the field, of course, you must explain this to USCIS, that a producer is one that kind of makes the film happen, right, they are the ones responsible for securing the funding of the film, for organizing the budgets of the film, for working with the executive producers to make sure that the film moves forward. The director is the person within the film who this is what USCIS thinks, but I'm sure we all know that to make a film happen, you have many, many different creative inputs from all players director, DP, gaffer, etc. But USAS um, interprets directors to kind of be the creative, the the vision maker of the film. So all these other crew members and performers are just executing the vision of the director. Okay. Interesting.
2: Um, And so you have to renew a green card every 10 years, did you say? Yes, you do.
1: Um, I didn't know that. You do. You don't have it Forever, It has an expiration date. (laughs) Of course, um, that does not mean that if you don't renew your green card, you're no longer a permanent resident. It just means that when you go to renew it, you have to demonstrate that you haven't abandoned your residency. Um, So I think it's important to know that there are fiscal considerations to make between remaining a resident and becoming a U.S. citizen. So obviously, once you become a U.S. citizen, if you choose to stay out of the U.S. for 20 years and come back, there's no issue, you are a citizen. There's no abandoning the country because you are a citizen. Um, The same is not true for a permanent resident. So for example, um, you must come back to the US at least once every six months when you are a permanent resident. This can become complicated for those who have to travel a lot for work. Um, So I represent a very well-known British photographer who, I, I mean, this person is in New York once a week. That's it. Um, this person is working on shoots in Milan, in Paris, um, uh, in Berlin for major, major, major uh, publications. Um, so for people who have to travel a lot for whatever reason, it's going to be difficult to maintain those requirements of coming to the U.S. at least once once uh, every six months. And also in order to become a citizen you have to have at least a at least 364 days of continuous stay in the u.s so these are important things to know um and i think that what people don't realize once they um become a resident and have retained their citizenship of origin and become a resident in the u.s is that you your actions can be interpreted by an officer at the airport that you have abandoned your stay in the U.S. Now, this can have very drastic consequences because what they'll do is they'll take your green card, they'll issue you a notice to appear in immigration court, which is basically going to immigration court, all because, you know, you decided to spend like five months in Aruba working and then coming back to the States for, you know, a recharge. Um, These are things that you have to be very careful about, because unfortunately, these decisions are made at the border, right? These decisions are made at the port of entry when you're entering the U.S., when they're looking at your documents and they're asking you a bunch of questions. There's no right to counsel in those situations. So you can't just call up an attorney and say, hey, come defend me and talk to me. It can be very intimidating for some people Mm. to be pulled into what's called secondary inspection which is basically a room where they're questioning you questioning your intentions questioning how long you've been in the US how long you've been outside of the US why have you been outside of the US these questions in in can be intimidating number one and what you say goes on the record and the only way for me or an attorney to figure out what's been said, um, and the notes of the officer is to issue what's called a FOIA request. um, A Freedom of Information Act, where I ask the government for a copy of your file. This takes six to eight months. So these are important things to to be aware of once you are a permanent resident and you're traveling. Um, And of course, there are people who decide to not travel so extensively and they won't have issues. But I always think that it's in your best interest to become a citizen so that you don't have these recurrent issues come up, especially if you are um, a frequent traveler. Of course, the fiscal considerations are, you know, the double taxation treaties and figuring out if you're going to be, um, if you have to pay taxes, both in the U.S. and your country of origin. Um, and for that, you need to speak with a tax attorney. Sounds
2: scary. <laughs> you just hey, going to hey, read, I'm guessing they they give you all the terms and conditions and so you need to
1: read through it with a fine tooth comb. <laughs> I mean the, the US they there's no sort of limit on how many people can become citizens every year or residents every year it's just that they want they want to ensure or the way the law has drafted makes it seem that they want to ensure that you are truly living here residency is not like oh you know I'm from you know Canada and I'm just going to you know keep my residency in my pocket you know just you know for safety whenever I want to go to the US no, they want you to actively live and participate in American society. Um, I think that it's part of the law is trying to make sure that you probably, properly assimilate to the culture, that you integrate to the culture um, and that you become, you know, an active member of society.
2: Yeah, give something back to society. Yeah. Be worth your while. Um, so that brings me nicely into immigrant investors um so this is also a way of getting your your green card
1: um yes and no so there is the green card for um those who work specifically in business it's it's known as the EB1c um and there's the EB-5, which is probably what you're referencing, where you can make um, a hefty investment, and then you're on your path to your green card. Or you can make an investment and hire people, and that also puts you on your path to your green card. Um, not every country can um, uh, has access to that um it depends on the nation that you're born in the nation that you're from in but yes those are cases where you are on a path to your green card so you have to make a hefty investment or you have to make an investment and hire people in certain designated areas within within the u.s okay how much is the hefty investment so it's either one million yeah. or 500,000 and hiring 10 u.s citizens
2: yeah okay. so if you invest one million, it's you don't have to hire the ten.
1: US no citizens. you you could oh. if you wanted to it depends on your business model um, yeah it is not a requirement like if you are investing five hundred thousand you if you're investing five hundred thousand, you must hire ten u s citizens, yeah, that's fair enough, which I mean, depending on your business model might make perfect sense, yeah. But- important to also realize that it's not that you get your green card right away. You are on the path to getting your green card. You're on the path to adjusting. So I'll give you an example of a client that we have. So this client has applied for the EB-5. She's in the process of getting her green card. However, she wanted to have um, an underlying status to allow her to work. So we applied for um, a different work permit or work uh, visa for her to work while her green card is pending. So it's not immediate the time frame is around roughly four years okay. which again might might you know roughly four years is also the amount of time that it takes for a company to um start up and start to you know make money and generate revenue so it might not be a bad option depending on you know your business model but there are other visa types that are less mm, scary in terms of the investment that can prepare you to file for a green card application. What I always tell my clients is it really depends on what your end goal is. There's um, ways of getting the green card that are straight, more straightforward than other mm. ways of getting the green card. It all depends on what you want your trajectory in the U S to be, because you can invest a smaller amount um, of a hundred thousand dollars and really develop your business. Um, so that it grows, generates revenue, et cetera, and then end up applying for, for example, an EB1C or an EB1A self-petition um, instead of ev- investing, you know, the 500000 or the $1 million, where, like I said, the timeframe is around four years. You can apply for a work uh, visa today. And then maybe in a year I deem that you qualify and then you can apply for an EB-1A, for example, and get the response in two weeks. So the time frame is much shorter and the investment is much smaller. That's why it's really important to speak with um, an immigration attorney so that you can properly strategize your time and your money, because you might say, hey, you know, a million is not a problem for me and I'm fine waiting up to four years and let's go that route. Other people might want to explore different strategies and different options of getting to the green card.
2: So the, is that the international entrepreneurship rule, where you'd invest like 100,000 and you, you could take up
1: your own startup into the country? So you can use the international entrepreneurship rule. I I know of only five cases that were approved last year. I'm a part of um, AILA, the um, American Immigration Lawyers Association, which is um, a network of all um, immigration attorneys in the U.S. and immigration and global mobility experts in Europe. Um, And I know five cases that were approved last year. Um, Because you'd need to prove that it was a viable business, wouldn't you? There's that option, but there's also the option that these cases are not filed as much as, for example, the E2 visa. The E2 visa is what I was referring to with the 100k investment. Now, the 100k investment is not the law; you don't need to invest 100k, um, but it is a figure that is going to um, demonstrate to the officer that there's a that that the business is, you know. A viable business and it's more likely to possibly be approved whereas you know you could start off with a 30k investment and that might be appropriate for your business type um and it could also be approved but usually cases are around of 100k although that is not the law if that makes sense yeah <laughs> well it gets complicated doesn't it um, well, because there's the theory, right? And then there's, you know, practice. So, you know, the theory might be like, yeah, totally. You The law is silent to the amount of money you, you can invest. So you decide to go with 30. But in practice, cases like that must be very, very unique cases in order for them to be approved. Whereas 100K is the figure that is, most often spoken about and um, most often worked on. Yeah. So but you don't necessarily need to do the E2 with an investment. You could do the uh, another um, visa, which is known as the startup visa, which is the visa type that um, startups use all the time where there's no um, investment requirement. Um, you don't need to invest any money. You need to have a high professional profile. So you need to have some sort of demonstrated track, track record of success, but there's no monetary requirement. And if you end up qualifying for that visa type, you almost always end up qualifying for the green card because the criteria is very, very similar, almost equal. So that's why, like I said, you have to work with an attorney that is going to understand cases that are not cookie cutter cases, right, like not the slam dunk 100k investment cases, and also a uh, lawyer that's going to really strategize with you to figure out, okay, is EB-5, is is that worth it to me? Is it worth for me, you know, making a $1 million investment, or should I take it slow and start off with a smaller investment and see where my business goes? Because remember, you're making this investment, but there's no guarantee of you getting approved. You could have something in your background, like, for example, you got arrested for stealing in your home country, for example, um, and you're not going to get approved. You're going to have to file a waiver. Waiver is like a pardon, and that's going to create a delay. Um, So it's important to, to understand that it's not a straightforward journey. Um, And that strategy is paramount to um, everyone's individual success.
2: Um, I know we're running out of time. So that was, uh, I was going to talk to you about um, how you benefit from having a lawyer with all of these visas, but I think you've just proved that very well. So
1: I think, um, like, I gave a speech um, two days ago um, at a university, and I think it's important to just understand what you want out of your relationship with your attorney. Um, Do you want someone who's responsive to emails? Do you want someone who's going to strategize with you and talk to you? You have to understand what you want out of your attorney, just like you would try to understand that part of yourself when you're looking for a partner or a spouse or something like that and the same as this is true for the attorney especially in immigration law it is a very Um, emotional journey. It is a long journey for some. Um, And it is um, an area of law that is very complex because there are multiple sources of law that we must apply to a given case. It's not like, for example, an area of civil law where we've got the civil code and that's the law. Much more complex in immigration law where you've got um, statutes federal regulations, policy memoranda, um, bilateral treaties that apply to certain countries. Um, all of this knowledge needs to be present within the attorney working on your case. And of course, immigration law is kind of divided into employment, investment, family and humanitarian and removal defense. So like even in immigration, you've got like four or five different subsets. and it's, it's, it's rare. It's, I think that you, you can't work with a generalist. I mean, you could, um, but I've worked on enough cases or cleaned up enough cases where a client went to someone who was a generalist and made errors. Mm. So I would say just read Google reviews, read Yelp reviews, Um, If your attorney has social media, look at your attorney's social media, um, see what type of content and message they're delivering. Are they more talking um, educationally and trying to inform you, or are they trying to sell you something, not that selling is bad it's just that that will give you a sort of um, idea of what their communication style is once you start working with them. Um, and obviously, the consultation is the um, first date between you and your attorney where you kind of, you know get to know your attorney's or prospective attorney's personality, um, you know, maybe meet some of the staff, ask the right questions. And um, I think I did a, a live video on this about the types of questions you should be asking your attorney. Um, a lot of the time clients will try to, Um, pigeonhole the attorney by saying, well, how many cases have you won or what's the percentage of approval? And these are questions that are um, extremely difficult to answer because no attorney that is licensed to practice law can ever confirm that you will get approved for the case that he or she is working on. That is legal malpractice. Um, And trying to understand the percentage of cases won really does not help. You as a prospective client, because what if all those cases were, I don't know, um, student visas? That has nothing to do with, for example, an O1A or an O1B or an E2. What you really want to be asking the attorney is, um, what is your strategy if we were, if I were to open a shoe company, or? Why would you suggest an E2 instead of an O1A? You want to be able to have a constructive conversation with with your prospective attorney because the most important factor for winning a case is not how many times he or she has won the case before, but it is the potential strategy that will be applied to the development of your case. Brilliant. Thank you
2: very much. This has been really interesting and really insightful, I have learned a lot.
1: Um, I'm glad. I'm glad. I think that immigration law is one of those really scary areas of of law, um, just because your livelihood is at stake. Um, Your family is at stake. You're making this huge investment, both in legal fees, in filing fees, and if you're investing in investment fees. Because You need to invest your money before you even apply for the case, right? Before you even submit your petition Mm. to the consulate or USCIS. So it's a lot at stake.
2: Um, Yeah, it's your future,
1: isn't it? It's your future, your family, your ability to earn income and make money, um, your ability to come back into the U.S. and go back to your home country. There's a lot at stake. You really want to... um, make an informed decision for yourself and the best way to do that is to work with somebody that you trust um, and that you can communicate with um it's been proven that even in in professional relationships communication is key to moving forward and it's a good indicator if your if your is not communicate communicative with you then maybe he or she may not be the, the best fit for you
2: yeah for sure it's exactly the same in filmmaking as well you want to with the people that that you're
1: working with on a daily basis so yeah so what's unique to my practice is that um i don't only practice immigration law um i also practice entertainment law um where i run into issues every day about um trademarks and copyrights um and uh release forms and the type of contract to be that needs to be drafted and a lot of the times the bigger you know Big productions or productions that require the intellectual and creative input of multiple players, it, it, it's sometimes difficult for creatives and artists to um, uh, standardize certain processes um, because they are very focused on creating the work, right? Uh, Focus on the integrity of the project that they're working on. Rightfully so, that should be their focus, which is why as a creative and as a professional, I think, it, and as an artist, I think it is very important to really um, understand the importance of the business of the arts, right? Really start to understand Um, how to create systems and processes that are going to work for you, number one. Um, Understand different legal and business mechanisms that will allow you to capitalize and um, make money off the work that you're doing. And nobody can know everything, right? It's just, it's impossible, right? Um, That's why I think early on in your career, um, when you're in film school, when you're at the conservatory, um, the universities need to do um, a better job of explaining these aspects of your career. It's 2023 and I still in in my speech the other day very well known art school in the US, Um, I'm still getting what I consider to be rudimentary questions about how to approach one's career. Um, So I'm not faulting the artist um, or the creative professional. I'm just saying that um, the world, including the academic institutions that these artists and creatives are paying hefty sums of money to really need to figure out what is the best way, whether it's in the form of a class or a seminar or a workshop or an internship, um, explaining and teaching um, the lessons of, you know, the business aspects of being an artist, um, because what what's happening if we're seeing is that you know, student filmmakers are kind of lagging behind, for example, uh, TikTokers, you know, young people. Yeah. Well, I mean, not young people, but people who are utilizing social media to their benefit are, are, are really capitalizing on it and creating a career off. And if you think about it, a platform like TikTok is really just creating a film that's like three minutes, right? There's so many different ways of telling stories on, for example, a TikTok platform that I'm not sure why schools have not, encouraged this artistic exercise of, hey, why don't you produce a film that's going to last three minutes and distribute it on a global platform and see what happens? I work with performers and filmmakers who, during COVID, were not able to um, find work. I mean, here in New York, I mean, Broadway was closed. I mean, there was nothing for that, that you could do attached to an institution because for four months, really everything was closed. Even professional offices like mine, we had to close or else we would be subject to fines. So, what did they do? A lot of my clients, um, particularly my performers, um, uh, and I have one lighting designer who actually did this, turned to an online platform like TikTok and started acting right? They were doing short, short, short films, like 30. Well, at the time, I think TikTok was like 30 seconds, right? Or one or 60 seconds. I can't remember. Um, But they were doing like short mini productions, right? With a proper beginning, middle and end. And if you think about it, that's quite a complex exercise for a storyteller. Um, And that is one way of creating a digital following for yourself, but also really pushing the boundaries of of your filmmaking and again placing you on a similar platform to performers TikTok-er, tiktokers um, influencers and all different types of creative professionals that are looking for different ways to capitalize off their artistry
2: yeah 100 i totally agree that's one of the reasons i do the podcast is to close the gap between um, the business and the creative lacking knowledge kind of I mean it's very sad because you know filmmakers really suffer from not knowing enough about the business side.
1: It is very, you know, I I studied film in undergrad and I did documentaries. Um, and now I represent filmmakers, and I see that the profession is still pretty archaic in terms of their approach to things, which the is the education side, yeah. I mean it's 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 quite you know, it's flabbergasting when you think about it, because what are you doing? You're hurting the industry. You're hurting the industry from progressing in America. I mean, the two main points of shooting for studios are New York and LA only during COVID because the rules were so stringent in LA, they moved about 35 productions to Atlanta because the rules were less stringent. Now, This is an extreme example, COVID, but it took something extreme like COVID for a new city to pop up to kind of be like a hub for TV and film. And it shouldn't get to that point, right? We should be constantly, you know, whether you're an attorney or an agent or a manager or a student, constantly trying to improve the profession, not only from the intellectual, artistic point of view, which of course, Filmmakers do very, very well, Mm. but also from the business side. We cannot, in 2023, ignore this aspect of becoming and acting as a creative professional. And I'm of the idea that these lessons or this um, integration to the profession begins if you go to university or conservatory at the university or conservatory level, because then they'll get three years, four years of this knowledge, and then they will apply to the profession yeah absolutely brilliant lots of room for improvement i think but it's going to take i think uh a recognizance um, and an awareness of the deficiencies that are currently present within the industry
2: yeah definitely you're very inspiring it's been fantastic
1: talking to you. you I'm very passionate
2: um about I can tell it comes across and knowledgeable as well. And I like the way that you made the the jump. Um because doing this podcast has made me really interested in the, the legal side um of filmmaking as well. So yeah, entertainment.
1: Yeah, I mean, Long. I mean, I think that for anybody who's watching who's interested in a potential career in the US. Um, I think hopefully what you take away from this is that you should really focus on yourself um, and approach yourself kind of as a marketing plan, right, I would, I always tell my clients don't say no. We are not in the phase in our career where we should be saying no to opportunities. You never know what can happen, and especially if you are a novice at the beginning of your career, saying no is just closing doors off to networking, to special projects, um, to seminars, and be be proactive. If you see something, or if you see a hole in in the industry, be proactive. Create a, a problem solver. Yeah, exactly. For sure. Um, Get your colleagues get your classmates involved do something, Um, because at the end of the day, if anything, these are considered to be professional achievements from an immigration point of view that can be utilized in a future petition. So you don't want to self-screen and discriminate against different opportunities because it is the attorney's role to analyze and determine what are the best professional um, opportunity or achievements to utilize within your petition. Because you can do so well in school, but unfortunately, from an immigration point of view, there's no academic requirement for um, an artist visa or an artist green card. I've worked on many cases where client did not have any sort of um, higher education degree and that's okay because it's not a requirement from an immigration point of view. Mm. So sometimes people are like, should I get a master's degree? I would say, it depends. I mean, if your goal is to work in academia, then yes you absolutely need to go and get a master's because at least US universities won't hire you without a master's degree. But what is the end goal, right? You want to do things um, with mindfulness. Like, are you just going to school to go to school? I would say sure. If you have extra money, then do it. (laughs) But (laughs) if if your goal is to be a professional in the US, then my advice is work. Right? Work on work on any sort of production, whether you're getting paid the proper day rate or you're not getting paid the proper day rate, work for a year because then everything will pay for itself because you'll end up making more money once you come work in the U.S. Yeah. The day rate of one of my gaffers is 650. It's pretty high. Yeah, that is good. So, again, everything kind of just depends on what your end goals are. Academia is not bad, but oftentimes academia gets used as like a cushion, right as like a pillow to kind of like soften the blow of falling and again if you want a career in academia then you must continue to get degrees and to publish but if your goal is to be an active professional working on set on productions then it's not necessary
2: yeah absolutely you can teach yourself a lot in this field anyway uh, education you isn't can necessary at all so I completely understand where they're coming from
1: yeah, I mean, I know a filmmaker who was a um, pet exter- uh, not a pet, pest exterminator for 20 years, and he taught himself everything, and he worked simultaneously sending his films to festivals, they were shown in different festivals, and I was always like, you know, you, you need to dedicate yourself to film full time, and he finally did it um he finally had that that confidence to let go and sometimes I think that students who continue within academia who don't have the intention of working in academia need to have that conversation with themselves where they just need to like let go and just kind of like launch themselves and hmm. they'll see that you know what they might fall the first time the second time the third time they might be rejected a hundred times but you have to just keep going
2: yeah And on a note of um, saying yes to everything, you have uh, done this podcast today whilst you're on holiday, which is very, very sweet of you to donate your time to us.
1: Absolutely. I love I love talking about the arts and business and immigration law.
2: Yeah. Well,
1: thank you so much. I'm very grateful. (laughs) Um, for for those watching, I have many free resources. All um, Amber, you said you'll put my information, but feel free yeah. to email me. Um, I have a free, I have two free eBooks, and I have an artist visa checklist. Um, I also have a short free guide on how to file a trademark application. Um, email me; I'll be happy to share all my resources.
2: Yeah, I'll put it all in the show notes. Okay,
1: all right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amber. This was very fun. I really enjoyed doing this.